This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, February 2nd, 2023. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include what you need to know about credential stuffing attacks and pig butchering, a method that's been used to weaponize some crypto apps in Apple's App Store. Apple's new security keys feature is now available for all its latest operating systems. Who should and shouldn't use this super secure Apple ID account login method? And we'll take a mini look at Apple's new M2 Mac Mini. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing very well. So we've got a lot of news today. Why don't we start with an Apple Maps privacy bug that may have allowed apps to collect your location information? Well, the headline pretty much says it all. Thankfully, this is something that Apple did patch last week. So in iOS 16.3, one of the listed vulnerabilities was... An app may be able to bypass privacy preferences. A logic issue was addressed with improved state management is how Apple says that they, they fix this. And apparently this was specifically a bug in Apple Maps. So at least we know that it has been patched. So as long as you've got iOS 16.3, this should not be an issue. But there was a period of time when third-party apps might have been able to collect location data without your permission, apparently. I don't know how Apple Maps works, but different apps can use Apple Maps. It's not like it's embedded in the app. It's like they're calling up a browser or something, right? Actually, I, I don't know. I don't know exactly how how the technology of it works, but that is true. I have seen that before where when I'm using a third-party app, it'll pull up information that looks very much like Apple Maps. So I guess there must be an API, an application programming interface for developers to do something like that. Okay, we have two stories about credential stuffing attacks. And the first thing we need to know is what is a credential stuffing attack and does it only happen on Thanksgiving? <laughs> no, it's not that kind of stuffing. That would be tasty. No, credential stuffing attack. This has kind of been coming up a lot in the news lately, so we thought it would be worth reviewing this. So credential stuffing is basically when... You hear about all these password breaches that happen all the time, database breaches, user databases get accessed, and now all of a sudden there's password data and usernames and things that are out there and available to hackers in the public, right? So what a credential stuffing attack does is it takes that existing exposed data and it attempts to reuse those same usernames and passwords or email addresses and passwords to log into other services. And so recently, both PayPal and also Norton LifeLock Password Manager have announced that they detected in early December somebody was attempting credential stuffing attacks, and apparently they did a bunch of these before they were caught. And so PayPal and Norton have both notified customers that you may have been impacted by this and you may need to change your password. We've had a lot of problems with password managers lately, in particular LastPass that we talked about recently. Another password manager called KeyPass, Keep Pass, K-E-E, -E, capital P-A-S-S. -S. They had a vulnerability that allowed local attackers or malware to export passwords. Now, that means that this is a vulnerability that 
decrypts your passwords and exports them, right? Okay, so what researchers have claimed is that by simply modifying a line in this KeyPass app's configuration file, that they can easily obtain clear text versions of all passwords stored in that database. So this is a problem, of course, if you have physical access, but is it does it go beyond that? Is there any way that some bad guy could potentially export all of your passwords? Well, theoretically, if you had a malware infection, then you wouldn't necessarily have to have a bad guy sitting down at your computer and doing something malicious there, right? Somebody could potentially write some malware that specifically is designed to just enable this change in the configuration file and then export all of your passwords and exfiltrate those to an attacker-controlled server. That doesn't sound very good. No. And interestingly, now KeePass is a fairly popular password manager and, and, and it's completely open source. So it's been around for a while. It's available on a lot of platforms. And so a fair number of people probably are using this password manager. It's a little bit concerning that at least at first, the KeePass development team has kind of said, yeah, we don't really think this is an actual issue because it does require physical access to a device on which the software is running. Hopefully they will rethink that because clearly there are other ways. And, and this is definitely going to be something that malware is going to start including, right? Why wouldn't they? If you've already got access to somebody's computer, why not just check and see if they've got KeePass installed? Because then now you can just steal all their passwords too. That's pretty fun. Okay. So we now go from credential stuffing to pig butchering. This is not the Josh and Kirk cooking show. Pig butchering is some new technique that has allowed some crypto scam apps to infiltrate the Apple App Store and Google Play. Pig butchering? I, I mean, who comes up with this kind of terminology? I don't know. This one's really gross. <laughs> I don't like this term, but... <laughs> Basically, what this type of scam is, is they're, they're trying to take down these crypto bros, you know, people who are really into cryptocurrency. So they're trying to take advantage of people who might be interested in downloading the very latest new crypto apps that might be available. So allegedly what was happening is that some scammers were targeting victims on Facebook and Tinder. I, I don't understand Tinder. That one's kind of surprising to me. <laughs> Tinder's a dating app. And they were targeting users of these platforms and convincing them to download these fraudulent apps and invest large amounts of money. Well, it turns out these were scam apps. Okay, so that's a social engineering thing. But one of the problems here is that these apps were submitted for App Store review and they were approved. And before review, they were pointing to a benign server and they had normal behavior. And after review, they started connecting to a different server. I want to know how the app review allows this. There's obviously in the code, here's the server we're connecting to. How could they have changed this? Well, there's a number of ways that a developer can potentially work around things like this. Now, you know, Apple will tell you that you have to design your apps in a way that there's no way that you can have deceptive, self-changing code and things like that. You're not supposed to be able to 
update an app so that after it gets past the review process, it now does something different. Well, there's a number of potential ways that a developer could do something like this. For example, maybe there could be something that looks kind of benign that maybe is checking for a remote server, a particular file on a remote server. And then if that file is missing or a file has been added, then it changes to trigger a different server to use or something like that. There's a number of different potential ways that something like this could happen. So these apps got past the review process, they got in the app store, and this is a good reminder that just because something is in the app store does not mean that it is perfectly safe to use. It could be a scam app that somehow slipped past Apple's review process. Don't assume that just because something's in the app store means it's safe. By the way, both of these apps have been removed from the App Store at this point. I think this is also a good reminder that cryptocurrency is a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> but that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> okay, this is going to make you happy. Open Core Legacy Patcher. Do you have your Open Core Legacy Patcher t-shirt yet, Josh? <laughs> I think you should have an, an honorary one. It now supports Macs all the way back to 2008 and mid-2007 iMacs like yours. That's right. As a reminder, Open Core Legacy Patcher is a third-party utility that allows you to be able to run the latest version of macOS on much older hardware than Apple officially supports. So if you have a Mac now all the way back to 2008, and even that one particular 2007 iMac that I have, if you've upgraded the hardware, then you can run Mac OS Ventura now, you don't have to only upgrade to Mac OS Monterey, which also wasn't, wasn't supported on that hardware. Okay. Netflix has said several times in the past year that they were going to cut down on password sharing because apparently, I don't do this, apparently people share their Netflix passwords with friends and family and people around the world. One of the problems with sharing passwords is if you're using the same password on Netflix as you use for everything else then that's already dangerous because you've given the password out. But Netflix is doing this because people are freeloading, right? So they're going to start blocking devices that aren't at the same location. And they've got a number of ways that they figure out how to do this. It has to do with IP address, et cetera. There are problems if you use a VPN just normally, like you have a VPN on, on your Mac right now. And if you want to watch something on Netflix, that could cause a problem. When you're traveling... Apparently, you can request a temporary code from Netflix when you sign in to a hotel, smart TV, company laptop, etc., to have access to your account for seven consecutive days. What if you spend half the time on the road, right? If you sign in to your home Wi-Fi at least once every 31 days on your devices, this will make them trusted devices. Netflix will remember them and leave them unblocked. And this is going to be a disaster. It's going to be a disaster, not for people who are sharing their password in the wrong way, but for people who travel, for business, for pleasure, families who are in two locations. What about a family that's divorced and there's the kids in one house and the kids? I think this is going to be a disaster for Netflix. Yeah, this is probably not going to be well received. <laughs> and we kind of already knew that that was coming, right? Netflix had been teasing for a while that they were going to make changes like this and they were coming up. And I understand Netflix's reasoning, right? Like they're claiming that they're losing a bunch of money and the more people they can get to sign up, the better, right? I mean, you can sign up for what? I think $6.99 a month, which includes ads, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, but that's with ads and SD. It's not even HD. It's, you know, poor quality. So we don't want that. 
That's so 2000. That's so, you know, old. Yeah, that's not a great experience. So here's another scenario. And there's many, many, many scenarios like this. But another one is, let's say you've got a college student, right? They they live at home most of the time. They're away at college. They're not going to be home every 31 days. But they are part of your household, right? They They haven't permanently established a new residence somewhere else. They're just temporarily going off to college and coming back home, right? Those individuals who are students, right, who are going off to college, they would be locked out potentially of these accounts. Now, there are potential workarounds for this. Uh, <laughs> well, can I, can I suggest one? If you set up a, a VPN in your home and you log into that VPN, then that will be the address that Netflix sees. So whether you're traveling at college or anyplace else, you'll be able to use it. Exactly. Yeah, my thoughts exactly. This is a little bit tricky to set up depending on your home network and, and what router you have. Sometimes this functionality may be built built into your router to sort of enable remote users to VPN into your home network. There are potentially other ways to do this that are a little bit more complicated. Hopefully your router supports this if you have somebody in that scenario who's frequently away from home. Maybe you're traveling a lot for business for more than 31 days at a time. Sometimes this is something that you'll probably want to look into because you're not going to want to pay for an extra Netflix account. That's very annoying. I don't even want to pay for one Netflix account. I mean, I've mentioned a long time ago, I re-up my Netflix account for a month every now and then. When there's interesting things to watch, then I cancel it. I'm not going to pay every month. And it's been four or five months since I've paid. And every time I look to see if there's anything worthwhile, it's like not worth it to just watch those two movies to pay for another month. So Exactly. We're at that point too. I, I'd been saying for a while, I've been telling my wife, you know, we probably should cancel Netflix. And she's like, but there's this one show. And so she finished that show. We're putting it on hold for a while. Okay. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the new Mac mini, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about using security keys to protect your Apple ID account on your iPhone, iPad, and Mac. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users for over 25 years, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier, powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, Personal Backup to keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Ventura and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users. Made by the Mac security experts. A new feature in Apple's latest operating systems is the ability to use security keys to protect your Apple ID account. Now, many times we have talked about two-factor authentication where you have your username and your password and a code. Now, the code could be sent by SMS, ooh, unsecure, or Apple system where it sends to another one of your trusted devices. 
A security key is a different way of having that second factor. It's an actual key that you plug into the back of your computer, or there are some that work with NFC that you can hold it up to your phone and it works like that. It's got a cryptographic key inside and it's probably unbreakable. And the difference is that if you set a security key on your Apple ID account and someone gets access to one of your other Apple devices somehow, they still can't use that to get into other devices because Codes won't be sent anymore. They won't be able to generate codes. You'll have to have that key. This is a really advanced security feature, and I definitely recommend that very few people should use this. That's interesting. Okay, so I, I know we kind of briefly talked about this before, but I think your logic for why very few people should use this is that now your only backup option is another key. If you lose your key, Apple does make you set up at least two keys. And I think you can do what up to six, if I'm not mistaken, you can set up a maximum of six keys. Yeah. So if you if you lose your primary key, you've got to have your secondary, your backup key somewhere else. If you lose both of them and you only have two, then you're in trouble because now Apple can't help you in any way to get access to your account, so they say. Yeah, they cannot help you. I, I don't see. It's not a question of so they say. This is a cryptographic key and they don't have it. In Apple's documents, they talk about two different cases for when this is useful. In a support document, they say that this is an advanced security feature designed for people who want extra protection from targeted attacks, such as phishing or social engineering scams. But in the press release, when they announced it, they said this feature is designed for users who often due to their public profile, face concerted threats to their online accounts, such as celebrities, journalists, and members of government. That's two totally different use cases. The first one is talking about phishing, and the second one is talking about, you know, state-sponsored targeted attacks. Right. So, I mean, it could potentially be used for for either purpose, I guess. Although it really seems like this is more likely something for the latter scenario, right? The state-sponsored attacks. Because generally speaking, if if somebody's trying to fish you, you know, or, or get access to your account through some social engineering scam, I don't really see why you would necessarily need security keys. Well, imagine someone sends you a link that takes you to a fake Apple ID login page. And you enter your name and password, and you're waiting for a code to come that says you're going to get a code. And, well, you're not going to get the code because you're using a security key. And the fake website will have your name and password, but they won't be able to do anything with your account because they need the security key. If you enter the security key, the fake website won't be set up to recognize that security key. So it does protect you from phishing, even the most, even the cleverest phishing. But who needs to be protected. Do you need to be protected? I know you felt that as a security researcher, you could be targeted. Certainly valid. I think, though, that this is the kind of risk like the advanced data protection feature we talked about recently. People might be tempted to turn it on because it sounds cool, but then if something goes wrong, they're really in trouble. I would suggest, if you really want to do this, get six keys. They're about 50 bucks each. You can maybe buy six for you know a package for 200 or something like that. You keep one with you, you put one in the car, you put one in the safe deposit box, you give one to family member, you put one in your in your office in a safe, you put them all over the place. Now, of course, the risk is the more keys are out there, the more possibility is of someone stealing them, but they still need your name and password along with the key. 
Yeah, if you do get multiple keys, you do have to then be responsible for making sure that all of those keys are kept in a secure place, right? If you just have one of these keys, presumably you're probably going to keep one with you on your keychain. Well, make sure you don't put your keys in some place or somebody else can grab them, right, and run off with them or else you might lose one of your keys and that's not a good thing. You do have to be really careful about where you're putting your keys now if you're choosing to go with this option. I can see someone like, I don't know, President Biden. He's got his iPhone and he's got his Apple ID and he's got his security key. And his chief of staff has another security key. And the Secret Service guy has a security key. And the head of security has a security key. It's like, you know, security keys all the way down. So they've got six of them and there's always someone who's got one. But if you can't get a hold of one, then you can't log into a new device. So if you've lost your key, I don't know, you're in California right now in an undisclosed location. Let's say you lose your key on a trip to New York and you get there. You can't get into your device until you get that key. Someone can maybe FedEx you a key that you've kept in California, but you'll be stuck in a point where you just can't access your account. Obviously, in normal usage, you don't need to re-sign into your account, but let's say you've lost your iPhone, you need to set up a new one. It's a real impediment. Yeah, I agree. It feels like this is probably more trouble than it's worth. It's worth kind of weighing the pros and cons and and looking at what does this actually protect me from versus, you know, what do I think this might be protecting me from, right? You kind of have to, to differentiate between what seems like it might be a good feature and what actually is the best option for you for your particular scenario. Okay, Apple's new Mac Mini is actually an impressive little computer. If you look at the Mac Mini, it kind of looks the same as the previous Mac Mini, which looked the same as the one before it, which looked the same as the one before it, going back for 10 years. Same shape, same size, little slab. Okay, it's only silver this time. You can't get space gray. But it's just this little tiny computer. It's small and it's quiet. And it was one of the first Macs to get the M1 chip going back two years ago, September, October 2020. And it's now been updated to the M2 and the M2 Pro chips, which is a very interesting choice because we've got the Mac Studio, which has M1 Max and M1 Ultra chips. And that was a, a little bit expensive for most people. It starts at $2,000. The Mac Mini, which starts as low as $599, you can get this configured in the mid-thousands. They have a configuration at 1300, which is pretty powerful, which isn't quite a Mac Studio, but it's much more powerful than the previous Mac Mini. It's kind of a, it's like a sliding scale now from the Mac Mini to the Mac Studio on the desktop. Yeah, this is very interesting from the perspective of looking at, you know, Apple's whole desktop lineup, right? They've still got the Mac Pro with an Intel processor and a Xeon processor, right, that we talked about is really outdated. $6,000. Yeah, it's really outdated at this point. There's very, very rare niche cases where you might actually still want to get that. For most people, that's absolutely not what you want at this point. Then they've got the Mac Studio, which, as you mentioned, so the, these aren't even upgraded to the M2 processor line yet. And now you've got the Mac Mini, which is kind of the most like consumer-oriented one, I would say, of the three. And that one has the M2s. It's kind of weird that they didn't do the Studio before the Mini, right? Yeah, the Mac Mini leaped ahead of the Studio, although the M1 Ultra is still the fastest chip out there. But the Mac Mini took a leap ahead. Maybe the Mac Studio is going to be updated in June at the WWDC with M2 Macs and Ultras, and then we'll have M3 Macs and Ultras, etc. 
One thing that I find interesting, I bought one of the Mac minis. I bought the cheapest model, 599, 8 gigs of memory, 256 gig storage. I bought it to replace my Synology NAS, which I've had for several years, which was annoying me. It's so much easier to understand Mac OS on a server than it is on Synology's thing. What I find is that even with the 8 gigs, 256, it does pretty much everything I need to do without sweating. The only people who really need to spend a lot more are those who are doing video editing, want multiple displays, etc. It also made me realize that my current iMac, which is from, let's say, June 2021, only has eight cores. It only goes up to 16 gigs of RAM, whereas the Mac Mini now, they, they have like 10 cores and they can go up to 32 gigs of memory with the Pro chip. So curiously, the Mac Mini took a leap ahead and it's better, well, relatively faster than the iMac and it's brushing up against the Mac Studio, yet I'm satisfied with this iMac. And I told you when I bought it, I was going to try and keep it five years and I will because most of us don't need this speed. So we're back at this same old problem of like they're giving us all these possibilities for faster and faster, but how many people are spending that extra money when they don't need to? Yeah, I, I, you know, for an introductory product, right? Like if you're just getting into the Mac, right? You don't, you've never used a Mac before. The Mac mini has always been that computer that you probably want. If you're, if you're stationary, if you don't need a, a laptop, a Mac mini is a really good option, especially looking at that bottom of the barrel price. You can get, of course, PCs much cheaper than that if you really want to. But for everything that you're getting for $599, this is actually a really good deal considering how fast the processor is and all of that. Now, $599 only gets you 8 gigs of RAM, which that's... Eh, not a ton. It's, it's perfect, right? It's plenty. If you're just doing web browsing and email and little else, if you're really doing a lot with it, if you're doing any kind of like audio or video editing, or maybe you're even doing a lot of graphics editing and things like that, you're definitely going to want more memory. But even then it's 200 bucks on top of that to get 16 gigs. You're still only at 799. That's not terrible, really. Yeah. I took a look at the original presentation of the first Mac Mini by Steve Jobs. I linked to it in my article on the Intego Mac Security blog. He pointed out that it was BYODKM, which means bring your own display mouse and keyboard. Don't forget that you've got to pay a little bit extra for the keyboard and the mouse. And while you can buy any kind of USB keyboard and mouse, the prices for Apple's products are really expensive. If you want Touch ID, you can get the Touch ID keyboard without a number pad for $149. If you want with a number pad, it's $179 in white. If you want it in black, it's $20 more. A mouse is 79 in white and 99 in black. The Magic Trackpad is 129 in white and 149 in black. So this can get really steep. Now, I would recommend buy a Logitech Bluetooth keyboard, whatever mouse or trackpad you like. These are all going to work fine. Worth pointing out, though, the do you remember how much the original Mac Mini cost? Was it $499? It was $499, and today's Mac Mini starts at $599. There were two Mac Mini models originally, a $499 and a $599, and today we're at $599. And this is 18 years later. So when you think about 18 years of inflation, I didn't look up on an inflation calculator, but this is obviously the original Mac Mini would be twice the cost of the current Mac Mini. Of course, 
all these prices have plummeted over time. Every year we get more for the same price. So it's actually quite a good deal. So I'm running a little server. It's whisper quiet. It's quieter than previous Mac minis. I've got an external hard drive connected to it for my Plex library, and it's fine. It's a great little computer. If you want to have one on your desktop with a proper display, well, it's $15.99 for Apple's studio display. So maybe you could get a cheaper PC display. Would you like that? A PC display? It's always it's always made me feel uncomfortable, PC displays. I had a Dell display once back with a Mac many years ago, a little more than 10 years ago. I had to exchange it about three times because of problems with it. Yeah, that's not good. Although I have to say that a lot of the PC manufacturers really do at this point make some good displays. You you really do have to read reviews and, and look into it really carefully, especially if you're just buying it sight unseen, right? If you're just looking to buy it online without looking at it in a store or something like that first. But uh, you can kind of tell some of this stuff from the specs, but you really you have you have to kind of look and see what the experts say about it. One other thing that I think is kind of fun about this Mac Mini, I don't remember if the previous models of Mac Mini had this, but I noticed that you can upgrade to a 10 gigabit Ethernet port for just a hundred bucks. Yeah, that's the first time. Yeah, the vast majority of people definitely do not need 10 gigabit. Most of the routers and switches and other network equipment out there does not support 10 gigabit at this point, but that's kind of cool. I mean, it could, it could be a future proof thing. Maybe if you want to wire your home with 10 gigabit ethernet. Yeah. I think the Mac studio includes 10 gigabit ethernet, the Mac pro, which is outdated. So there are some possibilities, but as you say, the whole chain has to be 10 gigabits to get that kind of speed. Anyway, if you need a cheap desktop computer, and I put cheap in air quotes because when you add the cost of the display keyboard and mouse, you know, it still gets up to $1,000. But you have a lot of options with the Mac Mini of your configuration. And don't overspend. You probably don't need the 32 gigs of memory unless you're editing 8K video. Right. But nevertheless, Mac Mini, honestly, with the, especially with these improvements, I feel like this is a great price. So if you have a friend relative who's considering getting a Mac and they're just not sure they want to spend the money to get a Mac. They, if they feel like a Mac is too expensive, this is a great introductory Mac. Okay. That's it for this week. Until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right. Stay secure. Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac podcast, the voice of Mac security with your host, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com.